0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, and Lord, as we prepare to unpack your word and look at the book of Luke and look at scripture, Lord, we pray that it would be your Holy Spirit that leads us and guides us into your truth. We thank you for this morning, the freedom that we currently have to gather. Lord, I ask your blessing, your protection on all those gathered here and on all those who are listening, Lord, um, as as we receive what you would have to share with us this morning. We love you and we worship you. In your name, Amen. Jesus called him the greatest man who had ever lived which I feel like that's a big compliment um, to say that up until that point in time he was the greatest man who had ever lived Um, and yet we actually have I mean compared to other men in the Bible we actually have relatively little um, on this man he spent most of his life living in the wilderness Um, his clothes were made of camel hair which I do not think would be very comfortable at all Um, His meal is described as uh, locusts and wild honey, which again doesn't sound very good to me. And he basically just lived on the outskirts of town, uh, telling people to repent. And honestly, if I were to just give you this bio, I mean, like he sounds like a bit of a crazy man, right? And not really someone that you're going to send your children to go listen to, right? And, um, And it's interesting because as much as he was passionate about his ministry... Towards the end of his life, he's in prison, and he's actually had some doubts about the Messiah. Are you the one who is coming, or should we wait for for someone else? And ultimately, this man is executed because some teenage girl does a dance for a king, and as a reward, she says, I want that guy's head served on a platter. And so that is how his his time ends. Uh, We are uh, starting off on a sermon series on the book of Luke. And um, so today that is where where we're going to be starting. We're going to be breaking this up into smaller parts, smaller themes as we go. But really we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke until the the end of the year. And um, so that's going to be kind of the overall direction that that we're going. A few things on the Gospel of Luke. It is quite fascinating. Um, The Gospel of Luke is, not only is it the longest... Of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, not only is it the longest, it's actually the longest book in all the New Testament. So we get more detail in the book of Luke and and more thorough kind of coverage than than any other book in the New Testament. Um, Luke is the man who wrote the the Gospel of Luke. Um, He also wrote the book of Acts, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Um, Luke is a physician. the, the gospel of Luke is the only book that is written by a Gentile, right? And so um, um, the others were all written by Jews, by Israelites, and, um, but Luke is, is the only one. And Luke was very smart. I mean, he was a, we know that he was a physician, but also the, the scholars say that his grammar and his writing style is fantastic. Like the, the writing style just shows a very high level of of intelligence and also education in in all of this so he has great writing style um each of the four gospels are written to different audiences and so in doing so they will kind of tend to emphasize or bring out certain parts in the life of jesus and luke is no different and he luke has a lot of parables And I don't realize this, but there's a lot of very common, very popular parables that we actually only find in the book of Luke that we actually don't find in the other four Gospels. Um, The parable of the prodigal son, very popular. Many of you are familiar with that one. Only the Gospel of Luke. The other three don't cover it. Um, The parable of the Good Samaritan, another very popular one, only found in Luke. Um, Parable of the two debtors. Um, Parable of the friend at midnight, which is really a a, a parable on just being bold and persistent in your prayers. Um, Parable of the rich fool, the barren tree, the lost coin, the shrewd manager, the rich man and Lazarus. Um, The parable of the persistent widow. That's another one that's encouraging us to just go after it in prayer and don't give up. And I mean, it's it's almost a parable saying just like nag God with your needs. I mean, that's my cliff notes, but um, kind of a fascinating parable there. Parable of the Pharisee and, and the tax collector. Um, So Luke writes the the gospel of of Luke. I'm focusing on Jesus focusing on the life death resurrection of Jesus And then he writes the book of Acts and some say that the Acts or the book of Acts is about the early church Some actually say "Eh, it's actually more about the Holy Spirit So whether or not you want to say it's about the early church with a heavy emphasis on the Holy Spirit Or if you want to say it's about the Holy Spirit and how he helps unfold and 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 lead in the beginning days of the early church either way It's also interesting because in both of these, Luke writes to a guy named Theophilus. Now, who is Theophilus? We don't know. (laughs) But this guy, Theophilus. So in the very beginning of Luke, um, this is how Luke opens. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past To write an orderly account for you most excellent Theophilus That you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught And then in the beginning of Acts he opens this way in the first book O Theophilus I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and and to teach And so he's he's writing to this gentleman um, Theophilus in in just kind of looking at sort of an overview of of luke and kind of some big picture things there's a couple things that that strike me just kind of right away even in in just those beginnings the first is that some ministries really require a lot of financial donors um and some don't the ministry of john the baptist really didn't i mean he's we he he I was going to say he was a crazy man, but he wasn't a crazy man, but he kind of looked like it, right? But he lived on the edge of the town, and he lived in the wilderness, and he just lived off the wilderness, right? Like, that guy doesn't need a lot of finances, right? But if you look at the ministry of Luke, now one of the things is that we really don't know when Luke became a follower of Jesus, so we don't know if he was one of the disciples that just never, or kind of the followers of Jesus that never got mentioned during the life of Jesus, or if he became a follower later on. We're not really sure, but what that draws into question then is how much of his gospel did he have to go back and research from other sources versus how much was it a first-hand account, and, and the speculation is that really he had to go back and do a lot of the, the research for this, right? Um, mo- uh, he is described as most excellent Theophilus. In other places where that's used in the New Testament, that's only referencing really high-ranking government officials. And so you go, well, was Theophilus a high-ranking government official? Well, we don't know, but he used a similar title. He used a a similar greeting. And it's pretty well kind of the consensus that whoever this Theophilus was, that he was a benefactor to Luke, meaning he helped finance these books, right? Because we're under the assumption that he had to go back and research a lot of what happened in, in the gospel of Luke. But... Like, the guy didn't just, like, Google it or, like, text some friends or, like, you know, put a post on Facebook, like, hey, can anyone validate this? For him to research meant that he would have had to travel to the location and then basically interview the locals to get the story. And then if he wanted to validate that, then he'd have to go interview someone else. And then he would have to travel over here and, and interview that. So for him to research this, again, I mean, they're speculating, like, this could have been a year or more. That, that he was having to, to do all of this. So lots of time, lots of, of, of research in this. And had Theophilus not financed Luke to write these two accounts, I mean it really raises into question whether or not we would even have these, right? And I mean the book of Luke and, and the book of Acts are I mean they're I mean they're like cornerstones in, in our new New Testament account. And how amazing that most likely The generous financial donations of this one man made this all possible. Part of the impact that some of you will have on the kingdom is going to come a lot through financial donations, right? I mean, you give to church, you give to missionaries. I know a lot of you give to Tabor College. Um, You give to short-term missions trips. Um, You know, you you buy something at at the youth group fundraiser. And and maybe you've kind of thought through this, but how amazing that you can give to a missionary and somehow in that, I, I, I believe this is the case, somehow you share in that spiritual inheritance that that, 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 that missionary re- is it, receives. I mean, I, I find that amazing. Now... I mean, obviously your life is more than your donations, obviously God still expects all of us to grow in character, and love of God, and love of people, and, and that kind of thing. But financing ministries, resourcing ministries, like sometimes it's cash, sometimes it's other resources, and how that may be a large one, I, don't, I mean, I don't know, I, I, I'm a little bit reluctant to say largest contribution to the kingdom, but how about we just say significant contribution to the kingdom? It was actually interesting, because actually in our, in our last leadership board meeting, we were talking about finances of the church. This is something that we do pretty regularly. Hey, how, you know, what are the numbers looking like? How are things looking? And you know, and are we on target? And yada, yada. And, but then we had a fairly thorough conversation on giving, because as some of you are aware, we haven't passed an offering plate since COVID. And that was really kind of one of the strategies, you know, going into COVID, people said we shouldn't pass the offering plate because that's one way to spread, you know, that kind of thing, right? And so we've shifted, there's like a box in the back somewhere, and then encouraging people to give online. And basically our fundraising strategy is, well, we don't talk about it and we just hope you give. Um, but there was a lot of discussion, not so much about, more so in like, what, and, and this will be kind of my words, but like. Just in, in character development, what helps people? Like, we recognize that giving is an act of worship, that sometimes giving is an act of obedience. Some people, not here, but I've heard other people, really push it, and they will say that, you know, Scripture says that the 10% is mine, thus saith the Lord. And so their viewpoint is that actually the 10% is God's, whether or not you give it to Him or not. And if you keep it, you're actually living on stolen funds. Maybe a bit strong, but interesting, interesting. And so... But just this whole idea of, if this is part of good godly character, how do we help people in that? And even in teaching our children in how to give. Is it more helpful to pass the plate so that the child can watch mom and dad give? Or is it enough that they're just having conversations on home to say, I give online through the the computer and whatever. You know, that kind of thing, right? So lots of conversation on just what does that look like and helping develop that that character and, and future generations. When you get to heaven, find Theophilus and say, hey, thank you for your financial contribution. Really helped out with the New Testament. Really appreciate that. Uh, Your gifts were noticed. Um, Thank you. Here's the other thing that, that strikes me kind of right off the bat um, about the, the book of Luke, is that Luke, is, Luke spent all this time researching, compiling the, the gospel of Luke. Um, for Acts, we know that he lived and ministered alongside Paul, so he experienced a lot of the, the, the firsthand events. Um, Luke is believed to have been written around 60 or 62 A.D., the writing of a book is very significant because it was so early to when Christ lived that if anyone had wanted to contest that, they would have had time to contest that, right? Like, eyewitnesses are still available or even, even you know, first generation. I mean, there's enough people around that they could have said, I affirm or I don't affirm or that's not what happened. Like, like there's enough of that um, going on. And there's a whole kind of fascinating science ar- around cont- um, uh, uh uh, oh, I just based on the name of it, but it's basically how many copies you have and how early they were written and all this other kind of stuff. As a comparison, Alexander the Great, right? Most of us are taught about Alexander the Great, and no one really challenges the idea of Alexander the Great. But an interesting thing about Alexander the Great is that his, the first people to write a biography on Alexander the Great were 400 years after the man lived and died. 400 years. For Alexander the Great, and even on that, like, accounts of Alexander the Great, I think we only have, like, five, right, whereas Jesus, we have all this stuff written, like, within the same generation, we have references to him in, in other sources, and it's just hard to find information on anybody from that era, you know, but it's, we have all this other stuff on, on Jesus, like, it's, it, it's remarkable, and it, it's a little bit, dare I say, ridiculous, ...that some people can be so flippant and so dismissive of of the Bible... ...when again and again it's proven to be this fantastic, remarkable, historical document. Like, it's kind of ignorant and lazy to just kind of dismiss the Bible and be like... ...well, it's weird or it's old-fashioned... ...without any research or any understanding of its value as a remarkable historical document... that, ...that records all this. And obviously we know it's more than just a historical document but from a historical standpiece. Like, it's really phenomenal. And so the book of Luke and the book of Acts are just fantastic historical documents. Here's the other thing, is that I mentioned how the different Gospels are written to different audiences, and so they will kind of tweak it for that audience in mind. Luke, by, Luke really appears to have been written to a Gentile audience, or, but still Christians, um, but a Gentile audience. So just as a reminder, right, the Israelites... ...or the Jewish people... ...they divided all the world into two groups... ...us and them... ...and we're good and they're bad... ...and like that's the group... ...and if you were an us, you were a Jew... ...and if you were them, you were a Gentile... ...and they just they didn't really like each other... ...at all... ...sometimes in church circles... ...we will we'll sometimes joke about Christianese... ...which is basically like slogans... ...or sayings or comments... ...that we use in the church and make sense to us... ...but frankly sound a little bit ridiculous to other people... Right, like we talk a lot about being saved, but if you didn't grow up in the church, it's like, saved from what? What do you mean saved, right? You know, or, you know, or we'll talk about, you know, I was covered in the blood, you know. That sounds creepy if you, if you don't know the context on that, right? Um, or, you know, like intimacy with Jesus, right? Like we have all these phrases that we throw around that to an outsider just sound odd, right? So the Jewish people had the same thing, right? They got phrases and expressions, and it's common to them, but other people don't know it. Luke modifies all of those for a Gentile audience. And so Mark will tell a story, and Luke will tell a story, and it's pretty much the same story, but whereas Mark sticks with just kind of Jewish insider language, Luke adjusts it, and he rewords it so that the common man can understand it. There is no insider knowledge required to read the book of Luke and understand what Luke is talking about the gospel is timeless the gospel is for all people the gospel is for all nations for all generations however we will sometimes modify and tweak how we present that timeless gospel so that the recipients understand this silent truth, or this timeless truth, right? I mean, if we were doing church 200 years ago, if we were doing church in South America, if a lot of you grew up in Christians' homes, if most of you had not, right, a a Sunday morning gathering would look vastly different, because you're taking those timeless truths, but how you present them to the audience so that they're most easily kind of digestible by that audience, and so that they can understand this. A couple of just kind of other fun features about Luke. Luke really seems to express a concern for social outcasts. He really seems to highlight stories around um, uh, the poor, um, uh, around women, around those that are known as sinners. Um, we talked about how we altered some of the terminology so the Gentile reader, Gentile reader, would be able to understand it. Um, he really seems to emphasize just practical teaching. Uh, You see a lot of joy. You see a lot of praise when Jesus heals or or does a miracle. So he has kind of a joy-praise emphasis. He's got a strong call on discipleship. Um, Really seems to highlight Jesus' dependence upon the Holy Spirit and prayer. And then just a lot of of, uh, examples on the power of God. Today we're um, actually starting in chapter 3. And um, it's the story of John the Baptist. The first couple chapters of Luke are around the birth of Jesus. We're actually going to deal with those at Advent. So we're going to go through Luke and then come back to the beginning at Christmas time. And John the Baptist is the one that I I was talking about um, at the beginning. It's kind of interesting because Luke begins his entire gospel not with Jesus, he actually begins with the story of John the Baptist. And you're like, why is this guy so important that we're starting with him rather than, rather than Jesus? So, like, Luke has a couple paragraphs of, of intro, but then he, he jumps into this story of John the Baptist, and actually he, he starts with his parents. And so he tells this story of Zachariah and Elizabeth, and Zachariah was a priest, and they're this couple, and they love the Lord, but they never had any kids of their own. And then one day an angel appears to Zachariah and says, you're going to have a son, Um, Both Zechariah and Elizabeth were advanced in years. We don't get a number. Um, Zechariah asked the angel a question. To me, it seems like a pretty legit question. But the angel says, no, that's unbelief. And so you're going to be mute until the child is born. And so that happens. Um, Mary, mother of Jesus. Elizabeth, mother of John the Baptist, are related. Some translations will say cousin. Some will say Relative. We're not sure. They're related. Um, Mary, now pregnant with Jesus, goes to visit Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John the Baptist. And this is literally the first thing that we learn about John the Baptist. Luke 1, verse 39. In those days, Mary, mother of Jesus, uh, arose and went with haste into the hill country, because she's just found out she's going to have the Messiah, uh, to a town in Judah. She entered the house of Zechariah, greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary... The baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed in a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, blessed is the fruit of your womb, and why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what uh, was spoken to her from the Lord. So, Luke begins with this story, with the story of John the Baptist, um, and that even in the womb, this guy is already really excited about Jesus. Uh, in the story of, um, of John, I'm going to read this here. There's about 18 or 20 verses that, that I want to read, and then we'll, we'll pull out a few points on that. Um, but let me just... Just read this whole thing here to you, just kind of give you a little bit of context. So I'm in Luke, I'm in chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 1 to um, 18, 17. First we get a, a, a date stamp, a time stamp, right? Because back then you just couldn't say, well, the year was 32 AD because they measured everything by who was in charge. So you get a really detailed, about as detailed as he could get Timestamp to give you a marker on when this took place. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Anturia uh, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and, Cai- and Caiaphas. It's about as mo- much detail as a guy can give. Um... And I lost my place. All right. The word of God came to John, uh, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and rough places shall become level ways and all the flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. This is a good welcoming speech. Are you ready for this? You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say for yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able uh, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Just a quick aside, the Jewish people believed that they had favor with God just because of their nationality. And so that's why he's saying, don't believe that God's your father just because of your your ethnicity. Verse 10, the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to him to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him and what shall we do and he said to them do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ John answered them all saying I baptize you with water but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. The first thing that... um, About John and just just the whole way that that his life was geared towards towards Jesus is the way that he prepared people to meet with Christ right John was calling people to prepare them to meet with Christ Uh, the word of the Lord came to John he went into the region proclaiming a baptism of repentance as it is written in Isaiah the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall, f- shall see the salvation of God. So here's the thing on that. At least in Jesus' time. That wasn't literal. Like John did not fill up valleys. John did not level mountains. John did not physically alter a road or a path right like he physically didn't change the terrain I think that what he's talking about here is the human heart Removing obstacles and preparing people to meet with jesus In christianity we we tend to focus a lot on forgiveness and acceptance which is true and fantastic and you should and that's really great And that's foundational, right? And so we'll talk about, you know, you can wander from God for years. And then the moment you decide to turn to him, you can turn around. It's like he's right there. And, you know, we have all these great analogies for just, like, quick forgiveness, quick grace. Like, God is right there ready to receive you. All true. But it's also true that reconciliation with God requires repentance. And repentance is where I say, I did a bad thing. I'm sorry, and I want to turn away from that, right? Repentance requires an acknowledgement that God is holy and just and pure. It requires a recognition that what I've done is wrong. It requires um, an awareness that my sin is keeping me from God, and requires honesty to say, like, God, I have grieved you. I have sinned against you. I am sorry, and I ask for your forgiveness, So John the Baptist is preparing people for Christ by calling them to this repentance. Here's the second thing that I find fascinating uh, about John's ministry. Is that he's calling them to, to take what they have and use it to bless others and not oppress others. So the crowd comes to them and they say, what should we do? And he says, you know, you, whoever has two tunics should share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise, right? So that they would wear um, two pieces of clothing. A tunic was an undergarment, and then there was kind of like a, a robe-type thing that was worn on, on the outside. But that tunic is what would um, keep you warm at night. So there's a sense of, of warmth, and then there's also a sense of food and provision, right? And it's interesting because it actually parallels what we read in James 2.15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is it? Right? And so this idea of being warm and being well-fed, and you, you, you kind of see that, that, uh, those similarities there. So John shares that with the crowd. And then you have the tax collectors. Tax collectors were especially hated because typically a tax collector was a Jewish person and what the government would do, rather than the Roman government trying to, to collect taxes from individual people, that would be too much work. What we'll do is you can bid on the right to tax your own people. So then you, have, you would have some kind of auction-like deal where people would bid on the right to tax their own people. And then you say, okay, you won the bid, and then they could go out and tax whatever they want. And then they would go out and they would tax their own people all kinds of exorbitant rates, not just to recoup their costs of what they pay to the government, but also cash in their own pockets, right? People hated the tax collectors. Soldiers. Um, soldiers basically have at their disposal, for back of, lack of better term, like they're able to act with violence, and so they would use that for personal gain. In, in both of these cases, John does not tell them to leave their job. He doesn't tell them to, like, overthrow the system. Rather, he says, don't abuse your place of power. Don't abuse your place of authority. And actually, even to use that to, to bless others, right? So in each situation, John the Baptist is saying, like, look, all of you have some place of power or influence or leverage or of authority. Don't abuse that. Don't use that for selfish gain, but use what you have to bless others. The third thing about John is just how his whole life is about following Christ and about pointing people to Jesus. So in verse 15, it talks about there's this sense of expectation. When is the Messiah coming? When is the Messiah coming? And they're starting to wonder, hey, could it be this guy? Is this the guy? Could this be the guy? And so John just tells them, I'm not the guy. And then he said, and in fact, later on, I think it's John, uh, the book of John, records he has this great line where John the Baptist says, he must increase and I must decrease. But John clarifies that this coming Messiah is going to be more powerful because he says, one coming who is mightier than I. Um, He he talks about how he's going to be just worthy of great reverence because he says, I am not worthy to untie this guy's shoes. Like, yeah untie the the man's shoes and then this distinction around baptism right he goes i baptize you with water he's going to baptize you with holy spirit and he's going to baptize you with fire and and the the scholars think that the holy spirit you know when we become a believer and then fire at um kind of at the end of the days when um when he when he comes again john's baptism was really a baptism of preparation whereas when you and i get baptized really it's a baptism of proclamation Because when we get baptized, we were saying, hey, not only did I repent, but I was also dead, buried, and resurrected with Christ. John's was just repentance, right? That was like phase one, right? And we're doing like, you know, we've done the whole thing with with Jesus. John's entire life points to Jesus. Luke is a remarkable historian. Smart man, well-educated, well-researched does a great job remarkable historian um his work probably possibly only possible because of a generous benefactor so that he could do that work but in this opening story of of john the baptist about a man whose entire life was geared towards making jesus known right his call to prepare people his call to repentance um encouraging others to use their resource for the benefit of others and not for personal gain, and then always pointing out how Jesus will will be greater. And I think that's really kind of the story for us today. And what does it look like to live a life where our life points to Jesus? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the gospel of Luke. Lord, we thank you for Theophilus. We don't even know who that man was. Uh, but we suspect he helped finance the writing of, the, of Luke and Acts. And Lord, we thank you uh, for him and his financial donation. And uh, Lord, we thank you for John the Baptist. And just this remarkable modeling that he gives us. And what does it look like to live a life where just everything about you points to Jesus. And Lord, I pray that that, that would become a model for us. And how we can give li- lead lives that point to Jesus as well too.